Hello, welcome to Deep Space Dive, a Deep Space Nine podcast. Deep Space Nine is the Star Trek with the greatest focus on political concepts like colonialism, feminism, queerness, and post-scarcity economics. Join hosts and guests who aren't just Trekkies, but activists, academics, artists, therapists, and more as we take a deep dive into the text and subtext where few Star Trek podcasts have gone before. The purpose of this podcast is to discuss Deep Space Nine's themes and characters. We do not do episode-by-episode recaps. Also, because of the nature of this podcast with the discussing of the themes and characters, all of these episodes are full of spoilers. If you have not watched the whole show, we recommend finishing your your binge and going back and binging us after you're done. <laughs> I'm Ilana Levin, also the host of Graphic Policy Radio. I've worked at the intersection of comics, nerd culture, and social change for a really long time. And my biggest Star Trek cred is I got to give a speech on fan activism at a rally organized by Lita, a.k.a. Chase Masterson. And I'm Sarah Daniel Rasher. And when I'm not getting paid to use math to save the world, I write about film and figure skating. I was the founding captain of my high school Star Trek club, and I once got Nicole DeBoer to kiss me at a convention. Aww. And today's topic is the relationship of Keiko and Miles O'Brien. So, she's a botanist-turned teacher because I guess there's no plants on the space station. And then she goes to Bajor to botany some more because the actress was frequently not available. Because Rosalind Chow is kind of a legend. And he's Miles O'Brien, played by Colin Meany. He's the chief, the tinkerer, the guy with the worst engineering job in Starfleet. They meet on The Next Generation, and they're the only couple who arrives on Deep Space Nine as a couple and leaves also as a couple. But should they, though? We love Keiko. We love Miles. They're both great characters in their own right, played by great actors. However, their relationship is kind of a mess, even though the show sometimes works hard to convince us otherwise. <laughs> so we are sending them to couples therapy. Joining us is Scott Thoreau, a Baltimore-based musician by way of Brooklyn with a bachelor's in psychology and a master's of social work. Thoreau did his internships of social work school with a narrative focus. And as a lifelong Trekkie, Scott is actually kind of named after Scotty. <laughs> Upon recent rewatches of DS9 and Discovery, he started really applying a social work lens to his viewing. Thoreau is currently studying for his LMSW. I met Scott myself through the podcast he co-hosts, The Wonderful Zebras in America, a film podcast, which is also secretly an underground hip-hop podcast. Welcome to the show, Scott. I'm so glad to be here. We've been talking about Deep Space Nine for so long. I'm glad to talk about it. And my favorite thing about Star Trek is talking about it from a social work lens. Yay. I mean, like when I was thinking about the kinds of experts we wanted to have on the show, you know, my own background is so much in like political and policy and activism. And then it sort of hit me like, but there's so many other things too. So this is going to be really exciting. Um, I, I do want to sort of start off with a sort of grounding question for us, which is, do we agree that Keiko and Miles are not a happy couple? Do you want me to go or do you want to let Scott go first? <laughs> <laughs> Scott, what do you think? So I would say that they might be a happy couple, but are they a content couple? They, they're they both happy by themselves, but together they seem more of like a, okay, than a passionate, loving. They sort of seem like a couple that they're good friends, but are they good lovers? And are they, and are they even good friends? Mm. It's... It's curious. Their chemistry is one of those things where we're told is is palpable, 
but it's not something that we see that often. There's love, but there's not a lot of passion. Yes, I agree with everything you just said. Uh, what do you think, Sarah? I feel like there's they're happy with their marriage, but they're not a particularly aspirational couple. Mm. Like they're not a couple you ship. <laughs> right. They're not a couple that you look at and go, I want my marriage to be just like that. And especially like I watch Deep Space Nine with my fiance and kind of looking at each other and going, let us never become that. Like, <laughs> it's sort of, it reminds me of like one sort of couple in my extended family where basically like they got married because they're tall Jews. Um, and they were like, well, you're cute and you're the right height and here we go. And I think that there is a certain kind of person and a certain kind of couple that that's kind of their criteria and they don't think about it as deeply as maybe the three of us do, but it's still like watching it on TV. It's a little like disappointing, especially on a show that has so many couples, both canon and non-canon, that you really, really root for. You know, the, the thing that, that I really like about them, though, is usually in television shows, when there's a couple that's having problems, and we know that they're having problems because that's, I mean, even in their first episode introduction in TNG, which I only watched, actually, in preparation for this episode, they're initially being positioned as, like, so I see there's some conflicts. Um, and usually in shows when there's a couple that is having relationship problems, there's someone who's the good guy and there's someone who's the bad guy. And that's not, I mean, that is sometimes how it's like in the real world. Some people are abusive pieces of shit, but also sometimes there's like two good people and they're having problems and that's okay. And I really loved it because I was like, oh, look at this couple, their relationship is shitty, but I like them both. Like I, I want both of them to have good things in their life. They're good people, but they're just making each other miserable. And like, that's really realistic. Yeah. And I also feel like, you know, I revisited the TNG episodes to sort of get an idea of like, oh, is there more that I'm not thinking about? And there's not really. Yeah, they're just these people <laughs> that meet and they're like, okay, why not? And yeah, I feel like in if DS if Deep Space Nine was was written today or or it was to have another view, I think we would revisit these sort of relationships where people are very close in some ways but are missing something. Uh if I were like if I were to take them to counseling, if I was their therapist, I would I would want to understand a little bit about what what goes on for them that makes them feel passionate towards each other and what what incites the passion. Because as friends, it, they, they clearly are good friends and they clearly love each other, but they don't have any of the same hobbies. They they certainly communicate with each other in a strange way. I would like to see them communicate. That's what I would like to see. Mm. Like, what what do they talk about when no one's looking? How do they talk to each other about toast? <laughs> or I suppose about uh, Japanese cooking versus Irish cooking is a sort of tragic. The thing is, we do fairly often see them talking when no one's around and they bicker. Yeah. Or they just like the communication kind of flows past each other. Um like, they don't really seem to have anything to talk to each other about. And when they do, there's usually conflict. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they don't seem to ever want to do the same thing. And like, their careers are really positioned against each other. And I think it's, 
it's interesting that the show looks at that because that is a realistic problem that people face. And especially in the 90s, you know, that was a topic that people were just really starting to acknowledge that, you know, how many women had given up their careers to support their husband's careers, even though the women are still working, their career was sublimated to their husband's career, for example. Um, like And like Keiko, right? Like she couldn't be the, as much of a botanist as she wanted to be because they were in a space station, which I guess for some reason you couldn't do as much botany in. So she had to become a teacher, which is like a very gendered profession, mm-hmm. right? Like this is like, this is so realistic. This is just what happened to people, you know? And I was at the end of the series, I really was like, can we please just now that we, you know, we've done Miles's career. So now they're, can we please have them maybe focus on hers next? Let hers be in the lead. And when she does finally get that sweet job on Bajor, she has to go back because she gets pregnant. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I do think that the fact that they're at their core, two good people who are just like having problems with each other does actually kind of make for them being an interesting character on TV. But I, it's, but it's hard for me to put my finger on why they don't have chemistry. Like, I, I don't know how to explain that. And, and I understand some people think that there's some episodes where they do have chemistry with each other. Uh, but I want to sort of broach that question about their chemistry or lack of. I never, yeah, I never really sense that their chemistry, like, again, I believe that they love each other, but I don't see too much of a connection often. Mm-hmm. I just see... There's the the couple times where you actually see the real love are sort of the times where the the other person in their relationship is Bashir is brought up when 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 she tells Miles to go play with his friend. You know, that's a that's a moment where you see real love or Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. It's yeah, the the chemistry is what I always I go back to. It's like where there's. Where's the where's the forehead kisses? Where's the little touches? You know, I don't see it, but but they definitely it's presented that they love each other. And it's presented that if the show were to come back, they'd still be married, even though a lot of the fandom are like, what? <laughs> yeah. A lot of the fandom had canons a divorce soon after the end of the show. Yeah. Um, for in various configurations. And yeah, it's. They're, and they're both such good actors they are. that you'd think that, and, you know, ha- I've seen them in enough other roles to know that if they're put in a situation where they're directed to show chemistry with a romantic partner, that they're very capable of showing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like they were just never directed to act like a married couple who had, like, physical desire for each other or like that sort of deep everyday lived in affection. Well, I recently learned from an interview that Rosalind Chow did on a podcast, Every Asian on Star Trek, really cool podcast. Um, she was friends with my, but Rosalind Chow was friends with Carl Meany prior to the show, actually. Her, her husband had been in plays with him or something like that. So they, and I think he like helped convince her to, to do the show so they actually had like a friend's relationship outside of this. So it's kind of like, oh, these are people who actually know each other in real life. And like, I don't know. Yeah. And and even I listened to that podcast as well at your recommendation ah. when I was doing a little research to make sure I was up to date for this episode. 
And she even said, like, oh, they would still be together. Yeah. Like, she didn't she didn't see what a lot of the fandom see. And, and one thing that the fandom sees, like, I definitely, I know that we're mostly talking about this couple, but I, I do, I think about the 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 lazy idea of people shipping you know miles and bashir when sometimes just like people are friends you know and <laughs> like it's okay that just like people are friends and <clears throat> uh, yeah that's the thing that i think that is that i've been most taken aback with on uh interacting with the fandom and seeing how the fandom is growing in a beautiful beautiful diverse way where I find I find Mashir to be one of the more frustrating headcanon ships. I was a hundred percent like I do not understand this ship. Are you guys just saying this because you find the actors attractive? I am confused. Until during this rewatch, when they have that episode near the end of the series, and they basically have the conversation in which they kind of admit to each other that, like, yeah, I. Uh, I, maybe I love you more than my spouse, huh? Since I do prefer to spend time with you. And that was like the first time where my brain was like, you know, I mean, maybe maybe the shippers aren't completely crazy. Like, I, it, it, but it was like, um, it was like the first time that that clicked for me whatsoever. And now I'm kind of, you know, while obviously this show, sorry, this podcast officially believes that Garrick and Bashir are a couple, but like, yes. I do now. I, under- I agree. With, I agree. Like, this is a fact. But I do. But that did make me like I, that did make me say, OK, guys, I don't think you're completely crazy. I get it. But it's not necessarily what I'm what is it's not my main thrust from the from the friendship. But it definitely connects to that trope of, you know, who are you choosing your your friends versus your spouses? I mean, there's a, and 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 I how much I hate that that conflict. I mean, especially as someone who like I have the same like the Venn diagram of my friends and my spouse's friends is a great amount of overlap. And I met my spouse through his friends. Like I knew them before I knew him. And like I hate the way so much of society's assumptions and norms are that these are that your friends and your spouses are like at odds with each other in some way, or that people couldn't just like all hang out. It, it, it's like this sort of woman as obstacle thing. I don't know. I suppose I look at all relationships as love and all relationships to, to, to not necessarily be on. I find all my relationships to have some sort of romance to them, even if they're not physical romance. So when, when a friendship like Miles and Bashir is as beautiful as it is, I'm just like, oh, that's a beautiful, profound relationship that is romantic but not sexual. Mm. At least that that's the the way that I've understood the context. And I think that them talking about how their relationship sometimes feels like closer than their married relationship says more about the marriage than it does about the friendship. Because mm. I I agree with you that that uh, these days most people like my partner and I, our friends are not in contest with each other. We just all love each other. And then there's all different kinds of love. Mm -hmm. I do want to speak in defense of like ship and let ship. And if people want to, you know, draw their pictures and tell their stories and hold it in their heart. Like it's certainly like, it's not like a creepy ship in any way. It's, you know, it's not really my cup of tea 
either. But what is my cup of tea? And I think this is a nice segue to looking at sort of other friendships that mirror off of Miles and Keiko is I have mentioned several times on this podcast that like in my heart, I ship Miles and Kira. (laughs) And I feel like that is a friendship that has a... An undercurrent of sexual tension yeah, to it. Yeah. And that one of the wonderful things about it is that they resolve it in a very mature, like, this is not happening. One of us is married. The other one is in a relationship with somebody else. It is not the right time. We work together. We are just going to be adults and acknowledge that, like, in another lifetime, this might have happened, but... It's not happening in this one. Mm-hmm. Um, and the part of the tragedy of it is that there are so many moments during that period when she's living with them and he's rubbing mm-hmm. her feet um, <laughs> that there is that plausible tension and that plausible connection between them um, that almost feels like an alternative and what it would look like if Miles were in a relationship with somebody who he had a sort of baseline compatibility with. Well, that brings me to a listener question, which was, and this is from the listener question, did bringing in Kira as a third, with a capital T, actually alleviate any problems between the O'Briens or just make them each that much more aware of what they weren't getting from one another? Well, if they were ethically non-monogamous, then then yeah, it would answer a lot of questions. <laughs> but if like if we if we revisited the show using our head cannons and the the if you look at the population and diverse people that are really taking to Deep Space Nine, it's a it's a very diverse, loving, open-minded people, and I think that's because the text suggests some open-minded ideas that we didn't even know how to unpack in the nineties. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, obviously like, yes, because what, one of the things that I'm positing is that, is that in the marriage, there's a lot of love, but where's the romantic love? So if you introduce Kira and you introduce the romantic love and then everybody's sort of having, that's a totally different story that I never even thought about until y'all brought it up. But I love them as a throuple. Yeah. I mean, they already, like, the show, they are a, they are a non-conventional family in those ways. And it's not to say that, you know, you can have a surrogate and the surrogate not necessarily be a part of the family. Like, that's perfectly fine. People do all kinds of things. But in many cases, the surrogate is part of the family. And, like, there's, like, th- th- this relationship, especially, like, in the future, like could take many different kinds of forms. And one of the imbalances kind of is that uh, like it really does a good job of exploring sort of Miles seeing what's missing in his marriage, but it doesn't get into Keiko and Kira having that bond Mm -hmm. or that connection in the same way or really exploring her psychology. Like you get some of it with her realizing that she can't provide what, Julian provides, but it would have been nice to see her having a few scenes mm. directly with Kira mm-hmm. that that are kind of creating a little balance there and a little exploration there and having her have something with Kira that's meaningful too. Yeah, because they really should be friends. Like Kira and Keiko would totally be friends. Right, like like who's Keiko's Bashir? Totally. And that was an issue that I that I always had. 
you know? Right. I mean, the problem is she's the guest star rather than a main cast person. And, and you know, to be clear, folks, that was her choice. She wanted to be able to have the freedom to be in lots of different things. But I, I do think that came at the expense of the character. And it would have been, I, yeah, I want to see a friendship that she has with another character. Like, could be a woman or not, but it would be really good to have had that. And there are plenty of male guest stars who have emotional relationships of various kinds beyond their immediate role. Like, I'm thinking of like, well, certainly Garrick, um, but even yes. like Nog, who's like ostensibly brought in as friend for Jake, hmm. but you see a lot of his relationship with with, with Rom, you see a lot of his relationship with Quark, you even ha- like really interestingly see a lot of his relationship with Cisco, but mm-hmm. like... Keiko basically just seems to like exist to be the wife and doesn't really seem to have much of an emotional role within the station community beyond that marriage. Yeah. Rom is is a character that I would also love to um do a session with, but that's that's neither here nor there. But you're right. Yeah. There's a lot of there's plenty of unpacking of the male lens and and not nearly as much here. And you're right. So how much of what's wrong with the relationship as it's displayed in the show is just a product of 1990s sexism? Um, like, how does that unconscious sexism relate to the show's criticism of more overtly sexist characters like, you know, Quark or Nog before he gets a clue or Worf before he gets a clue? <laughs> because I sometimes it's like, I don't know that the show knows that it's just doing these 90s sexist tropes or if this is actually supposed to reflect the characters. I, I feel barely equipped to answer that question, but you know. <laughs> yeah, I think this is one that is kind of getting thrown to me and Alana um, because it's something that we've noticed a lot in the heterosexual relationships, which are the only, you know, producer sanctioned relationships um, that you see things like there's this weird like push and pull with um Dax and Worf, another couple that might have benefited from a few counseling sessions, but um, mm-hmm. where like one episode, their their relationship will seem really equitable. And then the next episode, like Worf is insanely jealous of like everybody she talks to. Um, and there's a lot of push pull like that with Ram and Lita. Um, and we don't get to see the relationship between Ben Cisco and Jennifer Cisco, right. but and the one time we get close is in the mirror universe, and they actually kind of do that right and figure out how to get the chemistry so you can really see how these two people like would fall in love in any universe. But it's mm-hmm. like maybe that's because we only got that in one episode, and if we'd gotten in a couple more, they would have screwed it up in the same way. <laughs> but yeah, there's like a pattern of once people get to a certain level of romantic seriousness, this sort of like couples are at war and conflicting and men are from Mars and women are from Venus stuff just seems to set in um, either consistently or in ways that make that just make the characterization seem really inconsistent, like with Worf and Dax. Um, this brings us to a sort of related question, which is how much of what's wrong is 90s sitcom tropes applied awkwardly to sci-fi? And that's sort of coming from like, in the 90s, not really knowing how to do humor and slice of life and everyday 
emotional dynamics within a within a genre show. So you see things like woman as obstacle, the sort of incompetent man nagging wife dynamic, marriage is the death of fun, or needing to escape your wife and marriage to be yourself. How much is this like, we need to make this a sitcom? I, I think that you've really pointed, you've really like pointed to a real phenomenon here. I mean, I think specifically about the, you know, Keiko's condescension of their game of their miniatures games, right? Um, and how completely that just makes assumptions about women's recreational interests, um, you know, men as perpetual children, and uh, you know, trying to say like you're you know playing with toys and that's the only thing you can do without us. It's just it's like a, I think it is a consistent problem with. The sh- with the way the show has written those that relationship. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it even shows that, that a show that was attempting to break tropes and askew tropes still fell victim to a lot of the pitfalls of, of 90s television and what happens when a writer's room is predominantly, by predominantly, I'm pretty sure pretty all men, and that's going to affect the storytelling even if the goal of the storytelling is to tell diverse stories. There's, it's going, and mm-hmm. yeah, so I guess the short answer is yes. <laughs> so I, Scott, like, what are the things that you would have Miles and Keiko talk with each other in a session if you got, if you were their counselor? Well, I just, I, obviously this is all theoretical and as, as I don't have a license, I would not, this is all theoretical, of course, I just want to say. Okay. So I suggest everybody, everybody go to therapy. It's great. I love it. Is if I was working with this couple in particular, I would look at it from a lens of nonviolent communication, which is a uh, talking style and therapeutic style that posits that often the reason that we argue is that language is the bottom of much conflict and that we talk often in a way that has conflict attached attached to it. That the, the way we describe things, the way we talk about things already creates um, anger or feelings and, you know, it, nonviolent communications is when people make fun of it, you say, well, I feel you're doing this, or I feel you're doing that. And that could be, that could turn into, you know, a fight. But my, what I would, if I was working with them, I would say, you both have needs that are not being met. And the needs that are not being met are causing you, you both to talk to each other in a way that often talks past each other or forgets or doesn't look at each other's needs. What are your needs? And what are your needs that are not being met by each other? What are the needs that are being met by each other? And what is it that you both want from life? And what is it that you both want from life together? And what do you think that you're succeeding in bringing this life together? And what are ways that you think would you could improve? That would be the first session with them. Mm. I love it. That that feels like that would really open up the conversation. And 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 they haven't answered those questions in the show. The way you're putting that, Scott, is making me think that it sort of illustrates one of the bigger tensions in sort of 90s Star Trek and especially in Deep Space Nine is that we're supposedly living in this sort of post-conflict united federation of planets kind of society but at the same time how many of the conflicts are solved through either 
physical or verbal violence. So much of it, mm. so much of it is done through physical and verbal violence. And, and um, that's something that I find so interesting is that as I've been doing work professionally and privately, trying to understand healthy relationships and, you know, realizing that, you know, positive, positive or negative masculinity may be a myth mired in colonialism, capitalism. I look at this world that's supposedly, you know, post-colonialist and post-capitalist, yet there's still the patriarchy pulsing through in in all of these dyads and relationships that we're watching. So, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. One of the uh, big breakthroughs, though, for this couple in television is that simply that they were an interracial couple, and this wasn't that common on the shows. Um I actually think if I was recording this podcast in the 90s, I would probably be reluctant to point out that they seem to be a not very happy couple because I would be worried that it would seem like I was saying that, you know, this interracial couple doesn't work. Whereas now there's so many interracial couples in media that I can be like, no, 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 this one particular one (laughs) doesn't seem to work. Um, But it was a really big deal, I think, at the time for them to be an interracial couple, period. Yeah, just knowing, um, for example, like, and this was a show that was airing at the same time, that the show ER had an interracial couple among two of the leads and the network basically made them break it up. Wow. Yeah. and that was, you know, like exactly the same time frame when Deep Space Nine was airing. So to have a couple that is established as married, and even though there are some sort of background differences once in a while, like their racial and ethnic background is never painted as a reason for their conflict. Except for about food during that TNG episode, actually. Right. Although it's funny conflict and it's more along the line, again, along the sort of 90s sitcom lines of like wife wants to eat tofu, mm-hmm. man wants to eat meat. I know. And I hate that because of the way that that com- the way that that like juxtaposes with the idea of Asian as feminine, Asian cuisine as being feminine, Irish as being hyper masculine, meat as being masculine, eating grease as being masculine like that one just really set me off like as much as like yeah i mean sure like a character who's from ireland and a character who's from you know japan are going to have different ideas of what constitutes breakfast but like it felt really gendered because of the stereotypes yeah but other than that like uh, and once we get into deep space nine itself like that never comes up and beyond that they have two biracial children for whom they cast mm-hmm. biracial child actors. Um, amazing. amazing. So, I mean, I do want I would want to take this back out of our context of none of us being of East Asian descent um, and talk with mm-hmm. somebody who, who of, of Japanese descent about this too. Um, but it does seem like one of the things that is successful is mostly portraying an interracial couple in not just a positive way, but in a way where their um, racial difference is unremarkable. Yeah. And they do seem to approach each other, you know, with interest and curiosity in that way, too, which is nice. Yeah. Yeah. We criticize 
you know, because th- because there is so much good here, it, it makes sense that we want to take a look at the other ways in which they could have done better. But it's true. If you look at this milestone of this show of the families and of these remarkable characters that where their backgrounds were sometimes not even brought up that much, you're like, oh, yeah, you're right. You're, mm-hmm. you're right, because in the context of the 90s, the, there was less diversity in television shows. And I know that sounds like silly, like, like duh, Scott, obviously, t- 30 years ago, 25 years ago, things are going to be different. But I appreciate um, having to think about these things and, and revisit. That's that's what's so enjoyable about, I think this is the, f- I'm on the fourth time rewatching this show. And I'm rewatching it as I'm also watching Babylon 5 for the first time. And it's just like a a world of context and me going like, whoa. And it's it's a lot of fun. Because Babylon 5 is like Star Trek, but capitalism, which obviously changes everything. But like everything. Yes. But there are a lot of there are some <laughs> parallels and some connections and. Ah, oh, I love I love nineties. I love the I love I love that stuff. And it, yeah, there is so much to love. I, uh, I I do want to also think about just like some of the particular character quirks we see from each of them. For example, does Miles just get off on arguing or having conflict with people? Uh, and as Sarah pointed out, the pattern of you know he bickers with Kira Bashir, the Cardassian scientist from Destiny. Like, is that his thing? Right, like, is he just reactionary? Not even reactionary. Like, is this, is this how he flirts? Like, is this arguing? Remember, like, the Cardassian scientist ladies who are like, didn't understand. I'm not quite selling this clearly, but like, the Cardassian scientist ladies who are like, hitting on him awkwardly via argument because that is the that is the Cardassian form of flirting, um, and we find you know one of the ways the inter- he bickers with Kira. You know, he bickers with Bashir. Like, is is that is that Miles flirting? Or even just Miles showing affection. Like, is he one of those people yeah. who, if he's comfortable enough to argue with you, he's showing, that's a way of showing that he's relaxed enough. And also the other one that wasn't on our pre-list, but I just rewatched Hard Time, ah. like the conflict with um, Ishar, who is his cellmate in the um, yeah in the future episode on, on depictions of the carceral system, but um, his cellmate in the, in the um, prison sentence that exists only in his mind, like that was characterized by both very deep love and a lot of conflict. I mean, I, yeah, I think that's how he relates to people. And I get it, like the primary form of communication and, and with lots of people is through arguing. Like that's what that's what we do. If I was working with the family, I would I would be like, what is this about? What what how does this what is this form of expression and how does it what does it do for you? And conversely, what are some things about the situation that you do like? Mm. I mean, yeah, and like, is this making them? Is this making you happy? Right. Like, yeah. Is this the way you enjoy to communicate with each other? I guess because if you enjoy it, let's figure out a way to to make it a positive thing for others. Right. Right. Because, man, this is really. I am um, podcasting from my my parent from my dad's basement right now, and um, it definitely was like 
the primary mode of communication in like our family is like arguing about politics. It's just like what you do for fun at all times, constantly. And I, I was like, to imagining, oh yeah, that can be tiring for people, mm-hmm. huh? I guess. Yeah. I guess sometimes some people don't want to have a serious debate over the future of the Democratic Party sometimes, I guess. Um, they might want to do other things. I don't know. Um, and, you know, so it's a question of communications style and like, what do you, how do you talk to people for fun? Right. But it, it but it's an interesting character quirk for him, um, especially because like a lot of the time Miles is framed as sort of being very put upon. I had a friend who said, describes Miles like Miles suffers like Job is one of my friend's descriptions of him. Um but he also seems to in, in, yeah enjoy arguing with him. like that's one of his forms of communication. Right. And that's that, you know, I have a friend that I've known my entire life and I've I've had to just when he start when he argues with me nowadays, I just go, all right, you got this one. Because because some people, the way they enjoy being miserable or angry or bickering is not enjoyable for the other people around them. Yes. Thank you. I've never felt, <laughs> I've never felt that the Irish Jewish connection so strongly as I have right now. Well, there's, there's a lot. There's, there's, there's the food, there's, there's introspection, there's, there's the leftism, there's family bonds, there's the bickering, there's the cold. I mean, as, if we're looking at archetypes and tropes, um, totally. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. also when I, I've been told I look like Cole Meany twice. This is a long time ago because I, I don't think <laughs> that's true. But, you know, I'll take it. But, you know, there's definitely, you know, there's a whole thing. And, like, if we were to get, like, yeah, I, I was about to go into topics that are that definitely too, 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 too much to go into today. But, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. But yeah, you know, I would communication. I would uh, is trying to understand. That's what I would do if I was talking to O'Brien as as a therapist. My perception, like, okay, we know the real reason they have Yoshi in the meta world of the of the show is that because Kira, is, the actress who plays Kira, is pregnant, mm-hmm. so they have to. So someone in the cast has to have a baby. The actress who plays Kira is pregnant with the actor who plays Bashir's baby. Yes. yes. Ergo, someone in the cast has to have a baby. So that's the meta reason that Yoshi exists. But within the story, I always interpret, oh, right. right? I always interpreted this, I always sort of saw it as them having Yoshi to quote unquote save the marriage. That's like the way it always looked at to me. And of course, I think that that's like the worst possible thing people can do. Um, although I don't know if that's, how, if that's how you guys read. The let's have another kid thing. Because it didn't even seem like he, he was like scared. He's like, oh, fuck, are we really doing this now? I thought we met maybe later. I don't know. She's like, no, no, we're fucking doing this now, motherfucker. It was a scary choice. I, I, I never really thought of, I never really thought of it that way, to be honest. Hmm. I was just like, oh, they're, they're having another kid now. Yeah, I, until you brought it up, I, this strikes me as a bit of a Lana headcanon. And there's nothing wrong with headcanon. Mm-hmm. But like, sure. I when when you brought it up, I was like, yeah, I can see that. But I think that I don't think that that's the intention. I think that the intention is closer to like, mm. um, oops, we had kind of talked about it, and now it's coming, um, which I think is a fairly common occurrence in 
opposite sex marriages. So like, I mean, there, I think there's a sense once the baby is on his way of some like, let's get this marriage back together now that we're having another child. Refocusing on the commitment, I guess. But I just, I just really see that tendency of like, we're having conflict, so we should solve this by having another kid, which will also force us to continue to spend more time with each other and also create more tension and stress in our relationship. I'm just like, people do that all the time. It seems terrible, you know? <laughs> I'm like... <laughs> yeah, I always... Like, it seems like such a... I mean, I've never had to make a decision like like that. But when, yeah, when you hear about, oh, we, we had a kid to, to stay together... That 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 doesn't that just delays the inevitable. You know, people people having children mm-hmm. for for reasons other than, you know, the reasons people have children. I mean, there's so many reasons why people have children, but when you have when you have a child as as a way to keep a relationship going, in my experience, that has that has an itrogenic uh out, out, outcome. Yeah. It, kids are difficult. They make everything harder. Like, why would you think that would be good? Um, but they did a great job with the child actors on this. They're like very cute. And yes, as Sarah pointed out, actually cast biracial actors for it. Yeah, the kids, I mean, the kids in the show were great, you know? They really were. And they did something that at the time, especially like normally with a child that young, you'd just recast and recast. I mean, see the number of different people who played Zial. Um, but like they consistently hmm. had um, Hana Hatai play um, Molly throughout the show. And you got to really watch her grow. And grow as both a human being who started as a toddler and grew up to be sort of like a seven or eight year old child. Um, but also just like she learned to be quite the good little actress by the time like we were in season five. She was taking direction and doing line readings and showing mm-hmm. emotional connection with uh, with the adults in the scene. And like so she was a real asset to the show yeah yeah and i just was thinking about the episode where keiko gets taken over by the um evil spirits from the fire caves and i'm forgetting their names the pyraths the pyraths thank you it's just how amazing that like keiko the pyraths in the body of keiko menacingly brushing molly's hair is just amazing performance and, amazing performance from everybody yeah, an amazing performance from both actresses where like yeah. it's clear that this little girl really has an understanding of what's going on in that scene. It, I, when I was trying to go through though, just decide what episodes I needed to rewatch to prepare for the Keiko and Miles episode, it hit me how so many of the Keiko and Miles episodes, either someone has been kidnapped and on trial yeah. or unjustly imprisoned or, you know, they mean basically the baseline existence of Miles is like being tortured basically like by someone mm-hmm. or like someone's not themselves someone or there's Rumpelstiltskin it's one of the above but even like uh, going back to it you know they almost didn't get married right Keiko almost left the wedding and then you know it was like oh okay I guess you know so there there's been doubt and question throughout the whole thing and yeah Miles really was always getting taken hostage and being forced to have stuff and fight wars and 
Oh, no peace. He's gone through so much trauma. Like, yeah. He really, like, it's just ridiculous that they don't have a station therapist until the last season of the show because. And don't get me started on that station therapist, though I'm, <laughs> I love, I love, I love Esri Dax. I think Esri Dax gets a bad rep, but as a therapist, she, she requires some, some training. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's mention of a therapist on staff at various points, but we don't see one on screen until Esri. Right. And, but it almost seems like, oh, yeah, he went to this, like, one or two required therapy appointments after he got released from his latest bout of torture, and now he's okay. I'm like, that's not no. that's not enough, dude. Like, <laughs> it's not. I, I, do, I do really wish that they dealt with uh, PTSD on the show a little more head on, because, like, they did try to, and they did, in some ways, did such a good job. But it would have been interesting to to unpack that even more or or with a therapist better than Esri Dax. Yeah. Because her handling of Rob's mm-hmm. post-traumatic stress disorder was was not how I would how I would recommend doing such Nogs, thing. not Rom's, but that's Sorry, yeah. sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that there's a pattern on Deep Space Nine of occasionally dealing very directly and explicitly with trauma, but when the episode isn't about that, just like pretending it never happened. So like the pilot does a really good job of addressing Cisco as a survivor of trauma mm-hmm. and some of the metaphors that are used with the prophets um, are really, from what I understand, from sort of being in communities where um, people with PTSD and people who are um, who are combat veterans say that, like, the sort of, like, why do you exist here thing really resonates with them as sort of like what it's like to have PTSD. But when the episode's not about Cisco's PTSD, then he's fine. And like, mm. there's acknowledgement during the O'Brien episodes that deal with trauma that he's traumatized and you don't just get over trauma, except that when the episode's not about him, like there's no sign of trauma. Um, and so Again, I think that does kind of go back to like, it's the 90s, we're still trying, we're still learning how to do arc-based television. We're still in that mode where like everything resets a little bit. Yeah, but but trauma, trauma and, and psychic pain does not reset. And that's okay. That's what therapists are for and friends yeah. and television and lots of stuff. It's, it's like not a one way, it's not, there's not one way that we can cope with it or deal with it or or even deal with it. Sometimes it, it, it's more than that. All of it, how we approach it and interact with it is there's myriad ways. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting also, you guys just made me think about this. Like, I mean, you know, Keiko has been taken over by the Paw Wraiths, right? And I'm not saying that she hasn't had to deal with scary stuff, but... Like, there's so many traumatic things that have happened in Miles' life, including just simply being a soldier, Mm -hmm. that she would not have had insight into. Um, And that is sort of an interesting gulf to try to bridge, actually. I think it's something that the recent sort of generation of Trek shows address a little more directly, both the gap between civilian experience and military experience or 
you know, Starfleet sort of quasi-military experience. And also the idea of ongoing and sometimes lingering and sometimes latent trauma um, that just sort of carries through every action and every choice that people make. I think Discovery sometimes drops the ball on that, but at least is taking a making a valiant effort. It's interested in it, even if it drops the ball. It's interested in the ball. Tell me more. Meaning that the show is interested in talking about the pain and trying to understand the pain. There's a lot of content in season two that I feel that they there's attempts to unpack um, trauma. And yeah, some again... It it can be limited. Would Mile would Keiko and Miles be as interesting a couple if they were like more compatible and not constantly dealing with drama? Like, would we in, like do we want do we want that even in the show? I just I mean I I can't imagine them any other way. I could only imagine mm-hmm. them fig them working out their issues more. Like I think if they were, I couldn't imagine a show where where I just, that would be a different show and it would be awesome. But I just, I don't, I don't know. I can't answer that question. I'd say yes. I'd say that the episodes that I think of as being the Keiko and Miles episodes that resonate with me are the ones where they are on each other's side and they are um, in some way dealing with some kind of crisis together and Okay, this episode is terrible, but the, but but all, I just think of it as as cave girl Molly. Um, <laughs> that like it's, we know what you mean. It's not a good episode, but what is good about it is that um, that Miles and Keiko are depicted as two people working through a crisis together in a sort of mutualistic way. Um, and it sort of gives some insight into what it might look like to have them be, to have them have more of an, more of that attitude. And I think of like, how would, for example, the conflict between Keiko and Kai Win go differently if they've got that really strong, I have your back, I love you more than anybody in the world kind of attitude toward each other. Like, you're right, Scott, it would be a different show. But on the other hand, Mm -hmm. I think that it would enrich a lot of the episodes in which they're doing a lot of interaction and create more opportunities to both build Keiko's sort of sense of being a well-rounded person and create a wider variety of opportunities for the show to put them on the screen together and develop their relationship. I like it. Me too. I'm here. For I'm into it. it. I also I, I enjoy I enjoy <laughs> interacting and talking and figuring out different I love this sort of stuff. So yeah. Scott, are there any other couples in the show that you think are particularly interesting in terms of their own relationship? For different reasons, I would like to revisit you know kira and odo obviously i've wharf wharf and dax i think the subtext now that now that we've had 30 years to to watch that show and and understand the cultures of them i think 
that couple has a lot of subtext that, that could really benefit for some people to take deeper looks at. I mean, it those and chemistry. The chem- <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the chemistry is is amazing, but it's it's complex and in complex in a way that I don't think the Star Trek writers knew how to expand upon at the time or could. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll definitely want to do a big focus on their relationship on the show. Uh, I know like Dax is such a big deal that we've actually kind of almost punted on like covering Dax as much because we're like, have to do like the Dax episode or whatever. But well, we managed to do the Garrick episode and the Bashir episode. So I, I trust Daxes, us. So there could be many episodes. <laughs> yeah. This is true, too. I think we did refer to both of those character episodes, too, as like, this is the first Garrick episode. <laughs> this is like, this will probably happen <laughs> right. again. Yeah, totally. So we have one more listener question. Why is Miles stuck in such a 20th century mentality in the 24th century? I have my cynical answer, but I'd love to hear from Scott first. <laughs> oh, now I feel on the spot. I want to hear your cynical answer, please. My cynical answer is because he's the only white man in the male in in the, in the main cast, and so he's the sort of default everyman. So like mm-hmm. he's like he's just like you with all of your your racist and sexist problems of mentality and your small mindedness, like you, the viewer. Um, so yeah, I hundred percent agree. I feel a lot better now because <laughs> I was like I was like because he's white. <laughs> I, I, I yeah, because he's a because he's a white dude from the twentieth century, and he's being written by them. Uh, what is that type of character that's a stand-in for other people? I forget the trope of that, but he's he's the he's the trope for people. He's an audience stand-in. Audience yeah. audience stand-in, but little did he know that the uh, little did they know that the audience for Deep Space Nine looks a lot less like Miles O'Brien these days, and that's for the better. Yeah, the irony is here, that, here. like, most people like Miles, but very few people, like, name Matt Miles as, like, the character that, like, mm-hmm. you know, that they relate to the most or that they see themselves the most in. <laughs> I mean, the one thing I'll say is my spouse, who you guys are both friends with, at I'm trying to it was definitely at some point during watching season one, um, but later in it, my spouse is an engineer, and at one point in the episode, or it's, you know, Miles is like fighting with the space station, as per usual. Frank looks at me and says, Oh God, I'm Miles, aren't I? <laughs> so I think he's only relatable to you if you also happen to be a very put upon uh, engineer. And like, apparently, like engineers are like, No, 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 that I know that guy's pain. I mean, thank God, you know, Frank's never been kidnapped and put on a show trial, but. Um, the the space station is trying to kill me and you're not giving me enough time to fix yeah. this with your deadlines and you know like you'll never understand our complex relationship with the technology like no like this is a good this is, seems to be a pretty accurate portrayal of the, the the sorrows of the engineer but but it's important to highlight though again that Frank's wording was oh no I'm Miles not hooray I'm Miles right and Frank is so clearly not Miles <laughs> I think maybe it's just the question of the it's like the burden of the engineer oh. less so the actual personality of the uh, it's the bur- the burden of the engineer rather than the actual personality because it's definitely distinct <laughs> in all of the other ways I definitely have like my moments in my job where I'm like. 
this ship is sinking and I'm the only one qualified to fix this. And why? Why am I doing this? Um, So I think that like his work experiences and his sort of put upon nature is something that a lot of us can relate to in the moment. But like he's nobody's like, you know, like this is the character of my soul and my spirit. Right. Not aspirational. Every group needs a Leonardo, but no one wants to be Leonardo or something. I know some Leonardos. I, Fair I, enough. I know some Leonardos. I'm not sure I know any Miles O'Briens who would like admit it. Mm, <laughs> interesting. I'm going to have to think about that. I know. I'm like, okay, now we have to type everybody. Definitely working in a social, adja- social work adjacent job in the middle of a pandemic working in with, I, I don't want to say exactly what I do, obviously, but I definitely feel like, uh, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm the only, I'm, I'm trying to fix a problem, an engineering problem, and I'm not an engineer. So I, I get it. Yeah. In, in social work, I wish I, I was a Miles O'Brien. Yeah. <laughs> he does always seem to figure it out. I love the contrast that they put between him and, um, Bellana Torres, like early in Voyager where, you know, he's like, It'll take four hours, and Cisco is like, I'll give you two. And then Balana is like, no, I'm not lying. It's going to take four hours, so go away. And they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> like patting your estimates and uh, being like, no, don't fuck with me. Different ways of talking about your I'm work. Not, not many people are Miles O'Brien's, but many, many people admit to joyously being Balana Torres. So. <laughs> um, that is true. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Sarah, anything else? Um, other than just to know that the kitten has been running through here chasing a bug and it's been adorable. No, I think we've got it. <laughs> so thank you for joining us, Scott. This has been a real pleasure. I would love to have you back sometime soon. Definitely encouraging my listeners to give a listen to your podcast. Um, if there's anything else we should add about Zebras in America, like episodes you guys have coming up that you want to promote, let's hear about it. No, we're, we're just, you know, it, we just, we've been putting out episodes as we feel like it lately. Cause, cause it's hot and you know, it can be hard, but yeah, please check out Zebras in America. We, we used to be weekly and now we, we put out episodes when we feel like it. <laughs> it's still a lot of amazing content. Is there a, is there an episode that you might suggest as somebody, a good first episode or a couple of good first episodes for folks to check out for the show? I would say just search if there's a director you like that we interview and start with that one. We interview a lot of directors you like maybe, or you don't. Mm-hmm. Also. Or you should know. Yeah, also, our, our show is so sporadic and off the wall that you know our episode about black panther we didn't talk about black panther until 32 minutes so it's more it's more of an avant-garde thing it's a very enjoyable show you guys are really smart and thoughtful and folks can also listen to the episode that frank and i were on um i don't know if that has an episode number or name it it does we we had you on and we also had frank on by himself um yes that's right you guys um, talked about the films of what's his name true we did talk about Richard Stanley. Richard yes. Stanley. And yes. I think y'all, I think your episode like 99 or 98, but 98, 98, episode 98. See, I knew it. That sounds about right. We were right before the anniversary. I mean, the. Yeah, you, the, you got, y'all came to my house when I still lived in Brooklyn and it was awesome. Awesome. Well, 
Like definitely. And um, is there any place else folks should be checking out your work? Um, if you want to listen to my music, scottthorough.com is the place. I just came out with a new album called Tree. Ooh, spell your last name. T-H-O-R-O-U-G-H. Fabulous. As for me, I'm on Twitter a little bit too much. E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. Uh, and obviously there's more comics, news, critics, and conversations coming your way on Graphic Policy Radio. Uh, you know, we're covering Loki, we're covering the Black Widow movie, and interviewing comics artists and writers as per usual. And what about you, Sarah Daniel? Um, you can find my website at thefinersports.com, where I traditionally write about figure skating lately i've been writing about film but we have an olympics coming up so pretty soon i'm going to be writing a lot of semi-formed thoughts about gymnastics and possibly other sports that i watch by accident i'm also (laughs) on twitter not nearly enough by alana's standards at um, padashah which is p-a-s underscore d-e-c-h-a-t that is also my name on Letterboxd, where I usually remember to review the movies I've seen. Fabulous. So thank you guys for listening to the show. Please help us spread the word. There is more coming your way, like a Wharf episode. We didn't write an, out- an outro, Sarah. I just realized that. Or as Odo would say, if I say it's four hours, it's going to take four hours. <laughs> <laughs>